Amen. Grab your Bibles as the ushers come and collect the offering. You've got to multitask this morning. You've got to put your offering in the plate and grab your Bible. Turn to the book of Esther. If you don't have your Bible, grab a pew Bible and turn to page number 488. If you're sitting next to someone, look on. You're going to need to be in the Word this morning. We're going to try to cover 10 chapters of Scripture in 25 minutes. We've got a lot to get to. Before we do that, however, tomorrow night is Valentine's Day. And I know a lot of guys like me, you probably have no plans that you've made up to this point in time. So guys, I have a great Valentine's Day dinner for you and your wife. It's our sixth annual Wild Game Potluck. 6.30 p.m. in the Family Life Center. Your wife will appreciate it, I'm sure. Come on out. In all seriousness, uh, this is a great event. Uh, I have eaten things at these events I never thought you could eat or should eat. And it's been a blessing, so I would encourage you to come out tomorrow night. There's a special program being planned. Wednesday night, we continue our walk through the New Testament. Our friend Doug Maris will be back with us for week two. How many of you came to week one of Walk Through the New Testament? Did you enjoy yourself? Many of you did. I hope you will come on back for week two. We are in the middle of B90X, and when I say the middle, I mean Tuesday is the halfway point. 90 days through the Bible. Many of you are joining me in this journey. Those are the first six weeks, what we've covered up to this point. Been a lot of history. This week we read a lot about the time of the exile. Read about Nehemiah and the time of Esther. We're going to read about that a little bit later today. We looked at Job and we started the book of Psalms. This next week, week seven, starting tomorrow, we're going to finish the book of Psalms. We're going to dive into the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And if I were to try to summarize for you what you're going to be reading in week seven. Really, two words could do justice to it. Worship and wisdom. We're going to spend a lot of time reading about worship and how to worship and psalms of praise and worship, and then also wisdom. What wisdom can we glean from the Proverbs and from Ecclesiastes? Sermons are online. Some of you have said you missed one week, missed another. I encourage you to check out the audio or the manuscript versions, and of course the blog every day. I'm trying to share with you what I'm taking from the reading, and I'm hoping that you will join in and share with me and with others what you are taking. We're averaging anywhere from 100 to 150 different people that are checking out the blog every day. And we've only got probably anywhere from 3 to 4 to 5 to 6 that are responding. So I want to just encourage you. I know we had some new bloggers this week. Jump in. Tell me what thoughts really are grabbing you as you look at God's Word. Last week we were in 2 Chronicles 22. This week we're in the book of Esther. Much took place from the story of Joash in 2 Chronicles 22 all the way to the time of Esther and the exile. And we've got that quickly on the screen. After the period of Joash's reign, it really went downhill for God's people. Now, there were some positives along the way. Hezekiah had a good reign. Josiah had a time of reform and a good reign. But many of the kings of Israel in the north or Judah in the south did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And finally, the Lord said, enough is enough. And he raised up the superpower of Syria to overpower the northern kingdom in 722. And he raised up the superpower Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar to overpower the southern kingdom, Judah, in 586. And as we read books like Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, this is the period of the exile. Today, we're going to be looking at the book of Esther. And in the book of Esther, we're going to see a very unique book of the Bible. It's unique for two reasons. 
The first reason that it's unique is it's the only book of the Bible that details life during the exile. And this is after the period when some of God's people chose to go back to Judah, go back to Jerusalem, go back to the promised land. Esther, though, takes place in the kingdom of Persia. And the lives of some of God's people, some of the Jews that chose to stay, it's unique in that way. It's unique for a second reason. Anybody know why? What is Esther unique in uh, compared to the other 66 books of the Bible? It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God or the Lord by name. Now, you may be saying, why would a preacher pick a book of the Bible to preach from when it doesn't mention God or it doesn't mention the Lord by name? Here's why. Because I believe without a doubt, God is actively involved in the events that take place in this book. And I believe there are great life lessons for us today, whether we're 16, 17 years of age or 76, 77 years of age. There's much that we can learn from the book of Esther. Um, I want to start this morning with kind of an opening statement. This is my opening statement for you. I do not believe in coincidence. I do not believe in coincidence. Many of you probably do. Many of you will have events happen in your life, and you say to yourself, that's just a coincidence. I need to let you know, I do not believe in coincidence. And the book of Esther is a case study to prove my point to be true. So let's dive in. Now, I know for some of you, if you're not reading through the Bible in in 90 days, you may not have studied the book of Esther for quite some time. So I want to put up on the screen five key characters you need to know something about. The first is a man by the name of Xerxes. Say that with me, Xerxes. Xerxes was king of Persia from 486 to 465 BC, and his kingdom was incredible. His kingdom was comprised of 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. He had amassed more in terms of prosperity, in terms of land mass, than any king in history up to this time. In fact, his dominion makes the reign of Solomon seem minuscule, minimal in comparison. If there's a word I want to give you for Xerxes, it's the word authority. He is the king. He is in control. There's a second person you need to know a little bit about. She's just going to be in chapter 1, but she plays a key part in the story, and her name is Vashti. Say that with me. Vashti. She was queen of Persia at the time. And the key word I'm going to give you for her is the word deposed, and I'm going to explain that in just a little bit. The third person is a man by the name of Mordecai. Say that with me. Mordecai. These are words you need to get down. Mordecai the Jew, we don't know a lot about him in terms of what his occupation was, but we do know that he was a person of influence. He spent a lot of time at the city gate, and that's where a lot of the deals were made and a lot of the decisions were made, at the city gate. So this Mordecai, is a, he's an influencer. He's a difference maker. The second thing we know, and Scripture is very clear, he was a Jew. He was very passionate about being a Jew, and we're going to discover just how passionate a little bit later. The fourth person is a young lady by the name of Hadassah. And I'm not going to have you say Hadassah because she went by another name. Her Jewish name was the name Esther. Say that with me, Esther. And uh, Esther is the star of our story in many ways. She's one of the real female heroes of the Bible. And two things I want you to know about Esther. Number one is she was an orphan. She did not have a mother or a father. Her cousin, 
Mordecai raised her as his own. He was a father-like figure for her. Not just in terms of let's hang out for an hour a week, but come into my house, let me raise you. The second thing you need to know about Esther is that she was beautiful. I'm not talking kind of cute. I'm not talking okay. She was knocked down, drag out, beautiful. Think of the most beautiful, glamorous model in the world, and that is Esther. She was absolutely breathtaking. And then the third person, or the fifth person, excuse me, we need to look at today is the person Haman. Say Haman. Some of you probably thought it was Hey Man. It's not Hey Man. We're going to call him Haman. And Haman was a bad, bad guy. I don't mean bad in terms of good. I mean bad in terms of evil. And really the key word for Haman is that word evil. So with that, we've got a ton to cover. Let's dive in together. Let's look at the story of Esther. And I want to give you three truths as we go through this. And truth number one is this. When apparently unrelated events unfold, understand God may well be actively involved. Back to my whole coincidence thing. I don't believe in coincidence. Let's dive in together. Chapter 1 of Esther tells us the story of a party. And it's a party like no other party. Xerxes and his military had a successful campaign. So he took 180 days. And he and his, his, uh, his cabinet and his confidants, they reveled in all that they had. And so let me break this down into 2011 language for you. They had a party that didn't stop. Think of that song by Miley Cyrus, Party in the USA. This is Party in Persia, okay? For six months, there's a lot of drinking, there's a lot of reveling. Um, My guess is Xerxes was drunk most of the time during this 180-day period of time. After the conclusion of that, he has a seven-day banquet. You may say, how do you have a seven-day banquet? I don't know what a seven-day banquet looks like. But for seven days, he and his closest confidants were celebrating life. They were loving life. They were imbibing on a regular basis. He gets a great idea during this time. He decides this would be a great time to bring my beautiful queen, Vashti, to to me and to my confidants and let her parade in front of us and we will see the beauty that God has blessed her with. And he says, go get Vashti, tell her to get something on that makes her look just magical and have her come parade in front of all of us. Does that sound like a good idea? Some of the guys are saying yes. Most of the girls are saying no. Well, Vashti decided, you know what? I'm not doing that. I've got respect I'm not going to demean myself in that way. And she tells the king no. Let me explain something to you about this. Um, My wife and I, for instance, we may decide that we're going to go to lunch after church. And I may say to her, you know, honey, today sounds like a El Rey day. I'm going to grab some Mexican. And she may say to me, you know, I'm not really into Mexican today, but monocles sounds like a much better choice for today. And we'll have some give and some take. And if you know me, we'll end up going where? We'll go to monocles. That's just kind of how it unfolds in my household in many ways. Xerxes, when Xerxes says, go get Vashti, put on the swimsuit and come check us out, there was no other option. When the king spoke, it became reality. And if it didn't become reality, there were severe, severe consequences. And so what ends up, Vashti says no. 
And what was our key word for Vashti? It was the word deposed. She is no more. She is sent packing. Xerxes and his crew says, we can't have this rebellion from among the women. This could set a trend into place. We have to make a statement. And so what ends up happening is the absence of a queen opens up an opportunity for someone else. And that brings us to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is the story of basically an American idol, only instead of trying to find a singer, they're trying to find a, a queen. And they go and they scour the countryside for the most beautiful young women they can find. And long story short, they give them special things to eat and to drink and special lotions, and they parade in front of the queen. And Esther doesn't take a lot of extras. She just kind of does the whole natural beauty thing. And from the time Xerxes lays eyes on Esther, he decides she is going to be my queen. Now, I ask you, is that just a coincidence? Can it be just a coincidence that a girl that was an orphan ends up queen of Persia? I don't believe in coincidence. Well, we haven't heard a lot about Mordecai up to this point, other than the fact that Mordecai had raised Esther as his own. But one thing he had told Esther as she got ready to go to the kingdom was, do not reveal your nationality. Do not let them know that you are a Jew. It could have significant consequences if you do. So late in chapter 2, we find out what kind of a person Mordecai really is, and Mordecai is blessed to be able to uncover an assassination plot against Xerxes. So he does all that he can. He tells his daughter, his daughter in, in practice, Esther, hey, there, there's this assassination attempt that's about to unfold. They investigate it. They find out that it's true. And here's what I want to read for you. I want to read part of this at the end of chapter 2. It says, when the report was investigated and found to be true, this is verse 23, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. What's missing there? You can say it out loud if you want to. What's missing? There's no reward. This guy stopped an assassination attempt. And he doesn't get anything for the great act of service that he has done. Does that seem fair to you? I would say it doesn't. Let's play it out like this. Let's say you uncovered an assassination attempt against the governor or against one of our senators or against the president of the United States. Let's say you did. Let's say Scott does that. Or let's say Roger does that. Or let's say that Marla does that. What would happen to you, do you think? I mean, you'd be on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. And you'd be a hero. We would probably have an actual Clinton, Illinois day of honoring for Scott. We'd have a big parade up on the square. The mayor would come to church. You'd be hugging each other. Cameras would be flashing. I mean, you would be rewarded. And yet, right here in our story, there is absolutely no reward. That doesn't seem fair. It's all part of God's plan. One other event I need to let you know about this. Haman, what was our key word for Haman? Evil, bad dude, not in a good way. Bad dude, evil. Well, he has it in his heart that he wants to get the Jews, especially wants to get Mordecai. It really burns him that all of the other citizens rise and bow in honor of him, but Mordecai the Jew will not. You know why he will not? Because he will only bow to the Lord. The text doesn't tell us that, but we can infer that, that he was serious about his faith. He would not rise, he would not bow in Haman's presence. And so Haman decides he's going to do whatever he can 
to get rid of these people. They have become a stench to them. Look at that last thing that's in green. You probably can't see it in the back. I keep putting green on. Sorry about that, Dana. Here's what it says. All seemingly random events, yet God is actively involved bringing all of the characters into view. You've got Vashti's rebellion. You've got the beauty pageant to find the queen. Think American Idol. You've got Mordecai's assassination plot that he uncovers. And you've got Haman's evil plan. Where is our story going to go? Truth number two, grab this. When living through a devastating crisis, understand God may be at work through human tensions. Do you like tension? Do you enjoy tension? Can I just tell you, I don't like tension. When we get home as a family from an evening out and one of my children announced to me at 9 o'clock at night that they've got a paper that's due the next day and, oh, by the way, they forgot to do their homework, there's a lot of tension in our family. Not that that ever happens or anything, but there's tension. If I'm working at the scores table of a state tournament basketball game like I was yesterday and it's going down to the last minute of the game and I know that my fingers uh, could affect the outcome somehow, there's tension in my heart. My heart's beating like that. Don't mess up. Don't mess up. I don't like tension. Many of you don't enjoy tension. But understand this. God may well be at work through the human tensions we experience. Understand that. Let's read on with our text. Haman's plot is to annihilate the Jews. In fact, in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3, look at this. He says to the king, There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them And I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. Haman is diabolical. Haman is twisted. And Haman is moving to try to influence the king. He's number two in command in all of Persia. And he's trying to force the king to make a decision that will annihilate God's people. Xerxes thinks it sounds great. So look at what Xerxes decides to do in verse 13. He says in verse 13, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children. It's a bad time to be God's people during this reign. This is a crisis situation. This is tension at its greatest in many ways. And Mordecai responds exactly like you would think that he would respond. He realizes that this evil plan will have devastating consequences, not just on him, but on all of God's people. And he turns to the one person that might be able to help him, Esther. He puts sackcloth on, he rubs ashes on his his forehead, a sign of mourning, a sign of humility, a sign of submission. And he tells Esther, we have to do something. You have to do something. I think the most important part of this text is right here in verses 13 and 14. I want to put these up on the screen. Read with me um, Mordecai's words to Esther in chapter 4. Mordecai says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. 
And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai says to Esther, it may be that the very reason all of these events have unfolded, the the, the rebellion, the deposing, the beauty pageant, on and on and on and on, is for such a time as this. Well, Esther has a lot to lose. Don't forget, she was aware of what had happened to the former queen. She wouldn't put on her swimsuit, and she didn't get to be queen anymore. And now you want me to rise up against the king and tell him that this irrevocable edict has to be changed? Did I use the word irrevocable? It was irrevocable. And Mordecai says, that's exactly what I'm calling you to do. And so Esther decides she must act. She doesn't know how. But she decides, I have to act, and she tells the king, I need to have you in my presence for a banquet. And so the first banquet unfolds. Esther's not really sure what she's going to say, but she says to the king, can you come back tomorrow? Can you come back tomorrow? And tomorrow there'll be a banquet for three, you, me, and your number two guy, Haman. King says, no problem. He has no idea what's unfolding. Well, something happened that night. Look at verse chapter 6 of your text. Look at what happened that night. Xerxes goes to bed, but what's verse 1 say? He could not sleep. So this is before the days of direct TV and cable and such. So he orders that the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, be brought in and read to him. And it was found recorded in there that Mordecai had exposed the assassination plot. And the king asked this question, verse 3, what honor and recognition has Mordecai the Jew received for this? Coincidence? Is it a coincidence that that night of all nights he couldn't sleep? I don't think so. And that leads me to point number three this morning. This is what I really want you to grab. When trying to deduce God's sovereignty, and let's be honest, many of us at times have tried to figure out what is God doing? Why are the events that are unfolding unfolding? Why do the things I go through take place? When trying to deduce God's sovereignty, understand God's timing is always better than your timing or my timing. Let me say that again. God's timing is always better than your timing or my timing. Well, Haman's hatred for Mordecai is so intense that back in chapter 5, he decided that he wanted to see Mordecai the Jew die. So he did something that was very extreme. He had gallows built at his house, and he didn't build seven feet high gallows or 17 feet high gallows. What's our text say? 75 foot gallows. That's way up in the sky, okay? I don't know how he did it. I don't know what that's about. Big time gallows. Mordecai is, or Haman is so full of hatred for Mordecai, he's getting a little arrogant. He's getting a little extreme. And so after this dream in chapter 6, the king brings in Haman. Haman happened to be in the court, and he says, Haman, what should we do for someone that I am especially excited with, I'm especially pleased with? And guess what Haman's suggestion is? Anybody know? He said, I've got a great idea, because who's he think he's talking about? He thinks he's talking about himself. He says, get a great robe that you wore and a horse that you rode and uh, get it all bridled up in a, in a fashionable kind of way and take the servant that you are pleased with and parade them all through town 
proclaiming that honor is due to this king's servant. Sound like a good idea, right? That sound like a good idea? Well, to Haman's horror, what Xerxes tell him that Xerxes tell him to do? Go get Mordecai. He is that man. And so as we read through uh, the rest of chapter 6, Haman has to parade Mordecai through the town proclaiming how much this servant of the king should be honored. He hates the guy. He wants to see the guy hang, and now he is the instrument being used to parade him and give him honor through town. Chapter 7, Haman's troubles only continue. Haman gets home, he sits down, cracks open a diet Pepsi, he says to his wife, you're not going to believe what I had to do today. You're not going to believe the events that were a part of my day. I had to parade Mordecai all through town. The person I hate, the person I want to see hang, and his wife says, well, I got more bad news for you. The couriers are here. You're expected at the palace. You're going to a banquet with the queen and the king. Get going. And so chapter 7 tells us the story of Haman and Xerxes and Esther, they're at the, the, the banquet together, the feast together. And it's at this point that Esther seizes the moment and she tells her husband, the king, of the awful plan that has been devised to not just kill some people, but to kill her. She says, these are my people. And your plan, your edict, is going to wipe us all out. The king asks a great pl- a question. What's he say? Whose idea is this? Guess whose idea it was? Haman, who happens to be sitting right there. She looks right at him and says, it was that evil man, Haman. The king is so mad. He's so enraged. He's so upset. He gets up. The text says he left his wine. You know he was really upset. If he's leaving his wine, he goes out to consult his uh, advisors. What's he going to do? The queen is reclining on the couch, and so Haman is desperate. Haman goes to the couch, and he's, he's pawing at her. He's begging for mercy. Help me out any way you can. The king walks back in, and guess what he says? Will you even molest my wife, the queen, in my presence? And at this point, at this point, the king says, what am I going to do with this snake? What am I going to do with this guy? And a guy by the name of Harbona. We, we haven't seen much of Harbona. He's one of the king's eunuchs. He speaks up and he says, guess what, king? On my way to work today, I noticed that Haman had erected 75-foot gallows at his house. And the king says, sounds good to me. And before long, Haman is hanging from the very gallows he had built for Mordecai, the Jew. Well, time is not our friend this morning. I wish there was much more I could tell you, but here's the rest of the story. Freedom is brought to God's people. The edict is undone. Security to worship is guaranteed. And chapter 10 tells us that Mordecai, the Jew, goes from sackcloth and ashes to second in command in all of Persia. And so here's your bottom line today. Here's your bottom line. Understand God is sovereign over all human events, whether past or present or future. There's a lot of debate going on in the intellectual community today. Is God alive? And if he's alive, is he relevant? I stand today and I boldly proclaim to you, God is alive and God is sovereign and he is in control. So as we conclude today, what what do we do with this message? 
It's a cool story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But do we just stay in 5th century B.C. Persia? Or is there truth for you and me today? I think there's three truths I want to leave you real quickly. Number one is this. Understand that you are called to be faithful like Mordecai the Jew. That was the key word I gave you for him. No matter the circumstance or the situation. In chapters 3 and 4, man, it looked bad for Mordecai. It looked bad for God's people. And yet Mordecai stayed faithful. We're called to be faithful as well. No matter the circumstance. Whether we're on the mountaintop or we're in the valley. Number two, make sure your eyes are wide open looking for Esther-like opportunities to make a difference. You may say, what's that look like? I've got to tell you, I'm not really sure what that looks like for you. But I would say this to our high schoolers, keep your eyes open as you go through your day at school and as you go through your practices on the ball court and as you go through the social gatherings that you're a part of and look for opportunities to stand up and be bold for Christ. If you're an adult and you work in the workplace... Look for opportunities to be an influencer in the name of the Lord for such a time as this. Have your eyes wide open. And then number three is this. Never forget God is in control. And sometimes it's when we least expect his presence. Some of the darkest times in my life personally, Looking back on it now, 15 years after the fact, 10 years after the fact, 6 years after the fact, I'm convinced God was very much in control. And so I just challenge you today, if you're walking through that valley of the shadow of death, understand God is in control. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth we gain from it. Help us to be bold. Help us to always do uh, the right thing. Help us to always do the the Christian thing. Help us to always be prepared to stand up for such a time as this. We love you. It's in your name we pray.